Okay, we're going to go into Philippians starting this week. So let's go ahead and open in prayer as we look to the Word. Lord, we come before you and ask for your guidance as we look at this book written to the Ephesians and that you will guide and your spirit will be with us as we start with just the introduction to this book. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read uh, Galatians 1, verse 1, basically, and we're going to give you a little bit of the history of the book. So, Ephesians? Ephesians. What did I say? Galatians. Oh. And Philippians. And Philippians. All right. But now we got everybody totally confused, so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. I can't find it. This is a new Bible. Okay. Uh, Andy, you want to help her find it? Sure. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at this and we're going to go over a lot of the history of this book and everything and you'll be going, well, Pastor, why, why do we care? <laughs> you know, and it really is important to know these things. Uh, I've been talking with Annie and a couple other people through these last few weeks and they'll go, well, what about such and such book, the, the book of Enoch, the book of Tom, the gospel according to Thomas, the book of the gospel according to Mary, and they're going, you know, what, why aren't these books important to us? And we need to know why they're not. Because you're gonna hear people that ask you. And the reason for those books that I named are mostly because they're never quoted by anybody in the first century. And that they were written around three or 400 AD. So they have nothing to do with Christianity. Now, the book of Ephesians was written around 60 AD, 30 years after Jesus was living. Okay, and it's important for us to understand these things because there are people that say, well, now the book of Ephesians, it was written, you know, really late. Well, it can't be too late because the first century uh, church fathers were quoting from the book of Ephesians. Matter of fact, when they put the Bible together and they picked what books were out there, and there were hundreds of books out there, one of the rules that they used on it was, was it quoted by any first century church father? Okay, and if it was not quoted by any of the church fathers, they said, nope, that book doesn't, doesn't count. Either, either it was written after they were alive, or they didn't think it was important enough to quote from. So that was one of their first rules on deciding what New Testament books were included. So I just want to help you all because I'm sure many of you might have heard, well, man just put together that book. They, didn't, they just kind of picked what books they liked. No, they had 27 questions that they said it had to meet all of these criteria to be included as scripture. And the biggest one was that it had to have been quoted. Also had to mention God. It, it, you know, but they had a number. They had to know who wrote it, not just who it says wrote it, okay? Uh, which is one of the reasons that Hebrews almost didn't make it into the Bible because even though it was quoted by all the church fathers, they questioned who wrote it. And it is still questioned to this day who wrote Hebrews. But they, 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 they actually decided on that one, though, because it was quoted by everybody <laughs> that it had to be put in. So I just want to... You know, when we go through some of these things, and I do this every time we start a new book, I'm going to tell you who wrote it, where it was written, the time it was written, and it is for you to be able to understand what you believe and why. And it's very important. We need to understand what we believe and why. Because this world is getting darker. We're in a time when everybody is saying, 
you know, the world tells us that everything that God says is good is bad, and what God says is bad, they're saying is good. Okay, and we're finding that all through everything we do. You know, and this is where we are having to make our stand on the scripture, on God's word. And I've said it over and over, and I believe it. Every word of this book is true and correct. If it's not, I might as well just throw the book away and do whatever I want because I can't trust it. And I've studied it for a long time. I know that it's correct. I know that I, and I know that there's no contradictions. And I know the answers for the ones that people will try to tell me are contradictions. So there's, there's answers for the ones that look like they're contradictions because there aren't. And but we've got to believe J. Vernon McGee, as he preached on the radio, would always say that where God and I disagree, God is correct. And I've taken that same stand. If I can't understand why it's right or I can't understand what's, what it says, I'm the one that's the dummy that can't figure it out and I'm the one that's wrong and God is correct and I have to figure out what he wanted, wants me to learn and, and follow. And we need to get that way. The, the church in the 1800s got into trouble when Darwin put out evolution as an idea. And the early church was going, well, how do we fit in evolution? Science says evolution is true. How do we fit this into the Bible? Well, the answer was we don't because evolution is not true. It doesn't fit in the Bible because it's not true. But they were, they were struggling because they didn't want to take the Bible first and say the Bible's correct. And the Bible has been true and true every single time. Archaeologists use the Bible a lot to find out where these cities are so they know where to dig. And you know what they find out? Every time they dig where the Bible says the city was, they find a city there. Uh, every time. You know, for years they said David didn't really exist. The King David of Jerusalem, Jerusalem never existed. There's no, not outside of the Bible, there's no proof that he ever existed. Well, about 60 years ago they found all these records that said David, King David existed and they, and they said everything that the Bible says about him. Okay, we have a book that we can stand on. Even when everybody's telling us we're wrong, we need to stand on the word of God. And it's going to get harder and harder for us to do this. The world is now pushing us to accept homosexuality. It says homosexuality is normal and okay. The Word of God says it's a sin. I don't care what the world wants to tell me. I'm going to call it a sin. Now, am I going to get mad and, and, and attack everybody who's homosexual? No, I'm going to tell them they're committing a sin. They need to get right. Just as I would anybody who's committing fornication or adultery or lying or, or, or stealing or... You know, any other sin, I'm going to tell them they're in a sin and they need to get, get, get right with God. Because that is the issue. It isn't their, their sin and, and us trying to attack their sin. It's getting them right with God. That's all we're called to as a church is to tell people you need God. Why do you need God? Because you're a sinner. Amen. Well, I haven't met too many people who don't understand that they're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians sometimes think they're not sinners. They have been walking with God so long, I'm not a sinner, but I know better. And everybody who knows them knows better. And James says, if you say you had no sin, you're a liar and calling God a liar. Because he knows we've all sinned. And every one of us sin Amen. multiple times in a day, if not multiple times in an hour. Maybe even multiple times in a minute. <laughs> now, we all have problems with sin, and the Bible says we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. Yeah. And this is what the scriptures tell us. The world wants to say, no, nope, it's not a big deal. You know, 
What, what does the world tell you? If you, want to, if you want to please God, just do more good than bad, and when you stand before God, you're going to be okay. You know, sorry, God's standard is perfection. One sin is death, means death and rejection. You know, and everybody will say, well, you can never know whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. Answer is, I know absolutely. If you do not have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're headed to hell, no matter how good you are or how bad you are. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're going to heaven, no matter how good or how bad you are. Now you say, well, Pastor, that's strange. Everybody says you have to be good and you're a Christian. Well, you should be. Once you're a Christian, you have God living in you, and he is going to change who you are and work out of you. And you're going to become a better person. Not because you're sitting there trying to use a whip and a chair on your flesh and saying, get in, get in line, get, obey these rules. Uh, but God is saying, I'm going to crucify your flesh and I'm going to make you a better person. Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He, he'd gone to Ephesus. If you want to read about Paul's first visit to Ephesus, it's in Acts 18, verses 19 and 21. He spent six, six months there. <laughs> and it says nothing about his visit, basically. It says he went there, went, there, went to the synagogue, and left. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say much. Obviously, he had friends there that he's going to write a letter to, but it doesn't say much about his first visit to Ephesus. We know that the Apostle John, who, who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, wrote the book of Revelation, he was the bishop of Ephesus. That was his church that he was over that, that area. He was in charge of that whole area. So, and his wish was to get back to Ephesus. And after he was released from the Isle of Patmos, we're told through history that he went back to Ephesus. And if you remember, the Isle of Patmos is where he got the vision of the book of Revelation. It was a penal colony. More specifically, it was an insane asylum for the criminally insane. It was a very dangerous place for him to have been sent. Uh, Rome was trying to kill him. You know, John was a quite, a, quite, a, quite a character. They tried, Rome tried to poison him. They tried to boil him in oil. <laughs> they sent him to a criminally insane asylum, hoping one of the inmates would kill him. And God protected him, wouldn't let him die. Kind of an amazing, amazing man. So Paul writes this book of Ephesus to the Ephesians. He visited them. This book has a couple of major points in it. The first major point is the unity of the church. The unity of the church. We are one in Christ. In Christ is one of his favorite terms in this book. We are one in Christ. Does that mean we're always going to like each other and be real happy about each other? Well, if anybody knows a family where that happens, let me know because I'd like to see how they do it. Uh, every family has problems. Every family has certain individuals that you like better than others. Every family has certain individuals that you don't even want to be around because you just don't like being around them. But you're still part of the family and they're still part of the family. We as a church are going to have people in our church that we really like being around. You know, we're just really happy when we see them. There may be some people who are going, oh no, they're here, I've got to, be, I've got to watch what I do or say. But God, you know, God will give you the love for those individuals anyway. It's all God's love. To be able to do what he wants always boils down to his love, his care. He comes into our life. He changes who we are. He allows us to have unconditional love for people. 
And we've talked about unconditional love. Unconditional love isn't just, you know, you can do whatever you want. It is a love that says, I choose to love you. That's all it is. God chooses to love us. And because he chose to love us, he's going to love us. And the Bible says that he changes not. He's not going to change his mind and say, well, I love everybody, but I'm now going to choose not to love these people. Even when people choose to reject Jesus and get sent into hell, God still loves that individual. And it's going to break his heart to give people what they wanted. What they wanted was hell. And it's going to break his heart to send them there. But he's going to do it because that's what they chose. You know, would, and you think about this, what, wouldn't it be awful if God took somebody and we hear people go, well, God, we're going to save everybody. Everybody's going to go to heaven. You've never wanted to be spending any time with God. You never wanted to read his word. You never wanted to be around any of his people. You never wanted to obey God. How cruel would it be for God to put you in heaven for eternity? God, I don't want to be around any of those people. So, and then God says, I'm going to put you there. I'm going to put you in heaven with all these people you don't want to be around. Never wanted to be around him. You didn't want to be around me, and I'm going to put you in that place. That would not be heaven for those people. Yeah. And you think about this. As a Christian, have you ever been in a, in a group, a group of people, and you just felt out of place? I am not supposed to be here for whatever reason. They're, they're, they're drinking. They're drugging. They're telling stories that are, that are off color. They're... they're you know, everything about it is something that the Spirit says, no, you don't want any part to do this. Yeah. I love that God has given me a love for his people and his, his word. I got saved when I was 10 years old, and I've been studying the Bible ever since. You know, and you might go, well, how, how much could a 10-year-old study? But you'd be amazed how a 10-year-old can study on the Bible. I got correspondence courses. By 15, I was taking Moody Bible Institute courses. I loved getting into the word of God. God gave me a love for it. But he also gave me a love for going to church and being around God's people. I can tell you right now, I have, my greatest thing for me is to come to church and be with his people. It always has been. It wasn't just because I was a pastor that I came and taught and be, and be with God's people. God has developed that, and he's now allowing me to, to do it all the time, which is wonderful. I don't have to have other jobs out there and, and do it on the side. But love for God's people. When you're together with God's people, do you like to talk about God? Do you bring up God's name at all? No. This is something I throw out to people. It, Jesus said that out of the abundance of our heart, we will speak. What do, you speak of, what do you speak about all the time? What do you speak about most of the time? What's, what's in the abundance of your heart? If you spend any time with me at all, you'll find out that I'm going to talk about God at some point during that time, usually. Now, it doesn't mean I always talk about God. I enjoy sports. I enjoy computers. I enjoy science. But, you know, I'm going to bring God into almost everything that I talk about. Why? Because he's the most important thing to me. I'm going to talk about him. I've been in groups where I've been with other Christians or supposed Christians, and I, and I bring up God, and it's like, well, how can you talk about God? You know, you're just so spiritual. Get out, get out of my sight. <laughs> you know, and this is even before I become a pastor. You know, I'm like, well, I don't want to talk about God. And it's like, why not? Why not? Is his word important? How, how long can you go without reading the Bible? 
I like to eat, as, which is obvious as big as I am. I love to eat. You know, I don't go longer than a day without eating. I usually don't even go a day without eating. <laughs> I love to eat. But you know, I'm the same way with the Bible. I have got to read my Bible every day, if not many times during the day, because that's my spiritual food. How hungry does your spirit get? How hungry does your spirit get before you feed it? This is why we encourage everybody, read through the Bible. We've got the schedule. Read it every day. It's only two, only two or three chapters, and you're done, you know, three chapters a day, and you'll read the whole Bible in a year. You know, two in the Old Testament, one in the New. And this breaks it down to sometimes for the longer chapters and breaks them down into smaller bites. But I want to encourage people, feed your soul. Get to know God. Paul, Paul as he's doing on this letter, he's, he's, the outline of this book is, he talks about the church and salvation in the first three chapters, and then he applies those doctrines in the, se- in the four through six. This is Paul's pattern in a lot of his books. Intense doctrine, <laughs> application. So this is the way he writes most of his books. And we just want to look at this. And the other th- major theme in this book is positional truth. And you're looking at me like, what's positional truth? And so we're going to tell you what positional truth is. In salvation, there are three parts of salvation. One is positional. We accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and God says we're perfect. Now, I don't know about most of you, but I know for a fact that I'm not perfect. Okay? But, you know, in the court of heaven, God, because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, says positionally, you are perfect perfect. You are righteous. You are holy. You are my child. The greatest example I can give is, you know, if you think about this, if you go file for bankruptcy, you owe lots of money. You go into the bankruptcy court and the judge says, if you win the case, (laughs) you don't owe anybody any money. Now, you know that in reality, you owe these money, these people money and technically still do if you were going to be honest. But Legally, you don't owe money because you just declared bankruptcy and the court agreed with you. And the court and those creditors cannot come after you for the money. This is positional truth. God says, because we've accepted Jesus Christ, you are perfect. How will this change your minds? If you really get to understand that you, who you are in Christ, in positional truth, Satan can't attack you. Satan comes around as that creditor and says, uh, uh, you know, you're not perfect. You're, you're, you're really, matter of fact, you're a really stinking, terrible Christian. Yeah. And you can just look at him and say, you know what? You're absolutely right. That is the truth. But God says, I'm perfect. How can I say that? Because Jesus took all of our sin upon himself and paid for it. He puts us under the blood. He says, positionally, you are are perfect. The second part of salvation is the part that we're all living right now. It's called sanctification. We are learning to be what God said we are. (laughs) Hopefully we're learning. And you know, he crucifies our flesh and we become more and more perfect every day. Not because I am working real hard to do it, but because he is doing it. We talked about the fact that we are baptized in the Spirit. And if you remember the picture, it is that we are put into the Holy Spirit and left there. Just as vegetables are dunked into vinegar 
and the vegetable changes from a vegetable into a pickle. Different taste, different flavor, different texture. How much work did the pickle, the, the vegetable do to become a pickle? It didn't do anything. <laughs> really, you know, we blanched it, we put it in the vinegar, we sealed it and left it there for a while. All the vegetable did was stay in the vinegar. That's how we are changed. That's how we are sanctified. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is stay there. And the Holy Spirit changes us. This is why it's important for us to understand. I don't do anything. Remember last week we ended with, he said, we are new creatures in, in, in the Spirit, and that is what we are. We're new. The flesh has been crucified. I can't glory in my flesh because I cannot do anything that pleases God. Even when I do something good, God says in Isaiah 64, 6, it's filthy rags. You know, those people who think that they're going to stand before God and say, God, look how good I am. I, my, my good is better than my bad. Even if he totally took away all the bad, and all he does is look at your good, you're going to look like a bum. <laughs> Standing there in dirty, filthy rags, and God's going to say, ah, you're not good enough, get out of here. Because it's all in what he says, his son. His son. We're perfect in his son. We put on the righteousness of Christ. God sees us as perfect. And I love it. I'm going to keep it up there for a while. That, that sign at the beginning on the, on the PowerPoint. Satan knows our name, but calls us by our sin. God knows our sin, but calls us by our name. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't want to look at our name. He's going to say, I have a name for you, and this is how I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to call you by the good how many times have you maybe done it yourself in your family or at least heard others that in the middle of a fight they bring up all the bad that person's ever done? You know, husbands and wives are real good about this a lot of times. In the middle of a fight saying, well, 29 years ago you did this and 25 you did this and, and you always do this. And <laughs> That's not true love. <laughs> That's not true love. That's not forgiving what's going on. God says, I want you to live in Christ in Christ. God is our defender. He's our defense. He's our protector. It is so wonderful just to be able to rest in him. Rest in him and let, us let him be our protector. You know, have you ever been in a place where you didn't know what to do? <laughs> you know, everything's going bad. Everything's going against you. Idea? Follow what God says. Our God is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. All through Psalms, it says God is our shield. He's our buckler. He's our tower. He's our defense. God is saying, you feel stressed? Go hide in him. Go hide in him. God is not expecting us to try to do anything to get out of our troubles and our hardships. All he wants is for us to go turn to him. We look at it and say, God, I can't be that weak. You know, you're going to get tired of protecting me. You're going to get tired of, of hearing me. And God's saying, just hide in me. If you want the best defense that you can have, God will be your defender. If you want to try to defend yourself, God will say, okay, go defend yourself and I'll just stand back and watch you fumble and, and fall. And, and I can tell you my, my, my experience, every time I try to defend myself, I mess it up. I'm very good at messing up my life. Every time I just sit back and say, God, it's yours, 
I watch him do mighty things. You know, mighty things, it's amazing what God will do for you. God, I got a bill coming up next week. You know, I used to worry about it. Now I go, God, here's your bill. <laughs> you know, I'm doing what I can, but this is your bill, God, and I'll get a call from somebody that needs computer work, or I'll get something else, or I'll get a gift, and God will say, see, I take care of it. That doesn't mean we just sit on our butt and just wait for God to do everything, but it's, we're not to sit there and worry about everything and strive to do everything. Sometimes it's just best to sit back and say, God, this person's saying bad things about me. I'm going to let you deal with it. I learned a long time ago, you're never going to make everybody happy anyway. Now, I was a manager for years. No, there were always people mad at me for something. You know, they didn't get enough hours. They got sent home early. They didn't get the right job. They didn't, you know, you know, I had to go to the place where it was like, okay, God, this is, you know, I, I got a job and I have to do this, and God, you take out all the rest. As a pastor, I'm going to make people mad at me. I know I will. If I'm going to teach God's word, I'm going to have people mad at me. When I say that this something is a sin, and somebody says, well, he's stepping on my toes. Well, that's between you and God. I'm going to just tell you what God says. I'm also not going to sit there and judge people. I'm not, I'm not out there trying to say, you know, I can't be with you. I can't help you because you do this, that, or the other thing. It's between God and, and the individual. That doesn't mean that there's no right or wrong. That's what the world likes to say. Well, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever you think. No, God has a standard. God has a standard, and we're, he really expects us to work on allowing him to help us keep the standard. But it's him that does it. It's him that does the work. And so we look at this, and we say, Paul starts, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as we start looking at verse 1, actually officially now. Paul was giving who he is and what his authority was to write to them. Have you ever been corrected by somebody who has no authority in your life? It's like, you know, this happens oftentimes in Christian churches. Some Christian will come up and say, oh, you really shouldn't be doing this. I've actually looked at them and said, and so who are you? Okay, you're, you're not my pastor. <laughs> you're not a teacher. You're not one of my close friends. You're not somebody I ask to help direct me. Who are you and why are you judging me? Because God says we stand or fall before him. Now, we should have people in our lives that when we go off the wrong course can come up and say, you know, hey, I really love you. You really shouldn't be doing this. And I have a couple friends. If they come up to me and they say that kind of stuff to me, I'm going to listen very closely to them because they're my friends. I know that they, that they love me, and I know that I've given them permission to tell me when they see me doing something wrong. But if somebody just comes up to me and says, you know, starts blasting me, I'm just going to look at them and, like, who are you? Now, in most cases, I've learned to be nice to them. <laughs> you know, be nice to them anyway. But if it's not their business, it's not their, not their, their, their position to be in checking. You know, as pastor, I'm going to protect this church. If somebody's doing something that's going to harm this church, I'm going to protect the church. As the father of my family, if somebody's going to hurt my family, I'm going to protect my family. And that might even be very harsh. But that's because I have an authority in, the, in, the, in those positions, and I'm going to deal with them. Outside of those areas, if somebody's just being dumb, that's between them and God. You know, uh, you know, they're being foolish. They're doing something that's going to really hurt them. That's between them and God, not, not for anything else. And Paul's saying, I'm writing this letter because I'm the apostle. I helped start this church. And he says, by the will of God. Have you ever struggled with what the will of God is in your life? I was talking with somebody just this week, and 
he's going, well, I've got all these choices in front of my life, and he's given me all his reasons for his choices. And I'm going, but what does God want you to do? Now, in, in, in Proverbs, we're told, trust in the Lord with all your Lean, uh, lean on into, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. If you've ever been in a place where you've gone the direction you know the Lord has told you to go, and sometimes you look at it and say, God, this makes absolutely no sense. I've been there, I've been there many times. I've also been in the place where I've made decisions that made sense to me and found out they were the worst decision I could have made. And you know what was even worse for me? I'm a husband, and I drug my family into those bad decisions. And they suffered for my bad, my bad decisions. So over the last few years, I'm trying to get better at listening to God and, and following his will, because nothing's worse than looking at your family that you've hurt because of bad decisions. But God shows us his will. You'll have peace when you're following his will. Every time I've gone in the wrong direction, it looked good. I've always had questions in the back of my mind. When I do the things I know God wants me to do, there's peace. may not make any sense, <laughs> but there's peace. You know, coming to some little church in the middle of chloride, you know, with just a few people, you know, from a human point of view, it doesn't make any sense, but I knew God wants me to be here. And I've fallen in love with the people of this town. I've fallen in love with the people in this church. And I'm watching people grow in Christ because I knew it was God's decision. And I want to see people grow and, and continue to grow and, and watch and make spiritual decisions. I'm looking forward to the day when we can look at chloride and say this is a Christian town because nobody is rejecting God. Will that happen? I don't know, but that's what I'm looking for. Because we here are the church, and we're the church even when we leave this building. We get done in this building, we go all over this town, we're, we're the Chloride Church, all over the town of Chloride and beyond Chloride because we got people at Dolan Springs and Golden Valley, so we're the Church of Chloride going all over <laughs> sharing God, sharing God with people, bringing the gospel into people's lives, helping them to see what they need. And, I'm, and my job here isn't to build a great big church here in Chloride. My job is to build God's kingdom. If somebody accepts Jesus Christ and they want to go all the way to Golden Valley to go to church, that's fine. Be my guest. Go to, as long as it's a Bible teaching church, I don't care where anybody goes. As long as they're being taught the Bible. Because my job is simple. Build God's kingdom. It's God's job to build this church. He'll bring the people that are supposed to be here into this church. He'll bring the people here that need to be here. And I don't want people that aren't supposed to be here. <laughs> because there'll be nothing but trouble. <laughs> you know, if you're not where God tells you to be, you're going to cause trouble wherever you're at. Because God's saying, where are you? And then people go, well, I don't have to go to church to follow God. You're absolutely right. You don't have to go to church to follow God. One thing I can guarantee you, though, if you don't go to church, you won't be following God for long. 40 years, I've never seen anybody leave the church and keep following him away from the church. It's just like taking a white-hot glowing ember out of a fire and setting it off to the side. It will die. It will go out. It's a guarantee. Some people will only take a couple of weeks to a month. Some people might go a year. They might even go five years or a decade, but they will slowly stop following God if they're not fellowshipping with God's people. 
This is what church is about, is fellowshipping with God's people. Having people speak to you about what God has taught them. The greatest thing I look forward to is the day when people start coming to church and they go, Pastor, look what I read about in the Bible. Look what God showed me in this, this week in the Bible. And people go, well, Pastor, that's crazy. You know a lot about the Bible. You know, I, some of the greatest insights I've seen from that is when people have God has shown them something in the Bible and they've, they've seen something I've never seen. I've been studying for a long time and I can still have people come up to me and say, this is what God has shown me. And I'm going, wow, that's very interesting. Never think that what God has shown you is too small to share with somebody. Share with each other. Get excited about what God is sharing with you. He's speaking directly to you in the word. Share it with others. You, know, you go, I'm not a teacher. I'm not saying you're going to be a teacher. Go share it with others. Just show what God has done for you. Get excited about God. I've shared with people. When I got saved when I was 10 years old. I was in a bus ministry, which meant they picked us up at a bus stop. The week after I got saved, I kept telling everybody, you've got to come to church. You've got to get Jesus as your Savior. Well, how do I do that? I have no idea, but come to church with me. <laughs> Poor driver pulled up to my stop, and there were 20 kids standing outside the bus stop waiting to go to church that day. <laughs> you know, I was excited about God. I didn't know anything about God. And you know the amazing thing is, when we're new for God, we don't know anything about him. We tell everybody about him. Then we get to know him, we know, know a few things, and then we start learning what we don't know about him. And then we start becoming afraid to say, tell anybody about God because there's so much we don't know. Well, I got news for every one of us. You'll never know everything about God. I have never found anybody, any theologian, any, any, anybody teaching in a seminary, any pastor, you know, people that have studied 40, 50, 60 years, and they still don't know everything there is to know about God. You cannot know everything there is to know about an infinite being. Because whatever you think, when you think you're there, he'll, there'll be more for you to learn. Don't let your lack of knowledge stop you from sharing things with people. Because when you have a little bit of knowledge, you're the expert to somebody who doesn't know anything. It's funny when I was in computer, computer help, I'd go into somebody and they'd introduce me to their expert on their system. The thing they knew was how to run their program. <laughs> you ask them anything about the computer outside of their program, they didn't know anything. Now, to their co-workers, they were the expert. They knew everything there was to know about what they needed to know. But when they come with somebody who knew more, they knew nothing. Okay? My definition of expert is the person who's beginning to understand what they don't know. You know because it really is, you're never going to know, I don't care what the topic is, you're never going to know everything about that topic. You may know a lot more than most. You may be the foremost authority, but there's probably somebody out there that knows a little more than you do. So don't let lack of knowledge stop you from sharing the gospel. And as I shared in the last point I'll make, the worst thing that can happen to you in your mind is that somebody's going to ask you something you don't know. I, and I've told you all, that's probably the best thing that can happen to you. Because you'd say to them, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go find the answer. Can we meet again tomorrow, next week, or whatever? And I'll give you the answer. You now have two times to tell that person about God and the, and the gospel. What a wonderful thing. They asked you a question you didn't know. And you used it to give them the gospel twice. And yet that's the thing that people are always worried about. What if they ask me something I don't know? 
Praise God, that's a great opportunity. All right, we're going to close and sing a couple songs. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you love us so much, that you gave us your word, that you want to help us to grow. We want you to guide us, Lord. Give us the courage to stand up and go forward with you, Lord. Give us the opportunities and give us the courage to stand up and go through those doors and those opportunities. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.